like to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to join me in the book of Nehemiah. Calling it a book might be a bit of a misnomer. This is a journal. This is a personal account from Nehemiah of God's use of him in the rebuilding of the walls at Jerusalem. And though God used this group of people and this accounting of that moment to certainly build a wall, he also used the building of the wall at Jerusalem to spiritually build up these people. Nehemiah is back at Jerusalem, and in 52 days, those that he has brought with him and led and overseen have rebuilt the wall, which was mere rubble. They are starting to repopulate the city of Jerusalem, and for a hundred years, the city has lain in ruin. And in chapter 8, the priests have stood up and declared the law of God to the individuals gathered in Jerusalem. It's been about a hundred years. Their Babylonian minds and the culture of Babylon has infiltrated them, and for the first time, they are being reintroduced to the law of God, plain and straight. And in chapter 8, we note something. They break down and cry. They weep with sadness because they are confronted with God's expectations and their inability to meet them. Ezra and Nehemiah step up and they say to them, don't cry, the joy of the Lord is your strength, but right now what we should be doing is observing the Feast of Tabernacles. Don't get lost in that. It was a celebration of the harvest, a celebration of God's provision. Now, two days after the Feast of Tabernacles has ended, we find ourselves in Nehemiah chapter 9, and it's a recording of the longest prayer in all the Bible. That can be daunting. It's not prayer that I want to talk to you about so much as the content of the prayer contained here in Nehemiah chapter 9, which is so incredibly relevant for us. I just want to read the first three verses, and if you don't have your Bible, you'll note they're here on the screen for you. You can be certain this is from God's Word. Now, in the 20 and 4th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths, and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers, and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God, one fourth part of the day. And another fourth part, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. This is one of the great prayers of confession in all the Bible. In fact, it's very vivid, is it not? (coughs) Excuse me. Pollen is in the air again, isn't it? We just noted something. They have been weeping, and their response was sincere. It was not merely a show of emotion. They did not respond with broken hearts because it was the expectation. It was genuine. And now in chapter 9, we see a genuine response yet again. In fact, Nehemiah is telling us that they were fasting, which indicates that they were in mourning, they were grieving, they were clothed in sackcloth. They had heaps of dirt, earth, upon their head and upon their shoulders. And maybe you're familiar with the Bible story of Job who experienced incredible loss and went through a deep, deep valley of grieving. And as he grieved, this was his position, fasting 
in sackcloth and heaping dirt upon him. What we're beginning to assess is the emotional state of the people of Israel that are gathered. And what we know is this, they are broken. Their lives have been intersected with the word of God. And the word of God is a holy standard which has declared unto them just how crooked, how perverse their lives and their behavior has become. And what the Bible will do for every one of us is it demands that we take the mask off. It demands that we disassemble the facade. It rips the mask off and it mandates radical change. And this is a prayer of confession. And as we study chapter 9, what we will uncover is a path to genuine repentance. And I'm using that adjective intentionally because every one of us are good showmen. We may not know how to act in the sense of acting as our world might understand it, but we are masters of disguise. We know how to manage our emotional state, and we know how to manage sin. And this chapter drives right at us and mandates time for the mask to come off. It's time to get real. And we noted in verse 1, that's where we find the people of Israel. Now something stands out to me in that very first verse. They have been... Coerced into about everything that they've done. They have listened to Ezra and they have listened to Nehemiah. But in verse 1, no mandate has gone out that they should fast and that they should put on sackcloths and heap earth on their heads. They're doing this of their own will and their own accord, which indicates just how real their response is. If we are truly going to get to the place where we are the genuine article where we are real and we are sincere. How will it be done? We study this chapter and we learn this first. It requires humility. Did you know what we read in verse 2? The seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their father. We already talked about how they went through the genealogies and now what you have is God's people separating themselves away from all those who were not the seed of Israel. And as they gather together, they do so under the Old Testament covenant and they are freshly aware of the law of God which was delivered to their fathers, to the generations that preceded them. And they are also aware of how woefully inadequate the lives had been lived and how much they had failed God. And now they are standing and confessing. Now let's be honest. At this point in time, it wasn't really their sins that sent them into the bondage of Babylon. It wasn't this generation's sins that is gathered here that had the walls broken down and the city ruined. And yet we find them responding to the law of God in humility. Now, I want you to see, and and I won't try to bore you to death with it, but I want you to pick up some of the language because we see where they are in their minds and hearts. Look at verse 16. Talking straight to God now. They're talking about deliberate rebellion, and they say, they and our fathers dealt proudly, and they hardened their necks, and hearkened not to thy commandments, And refused to obey, neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, and hardened their necks. That that just means they were not able to be turned. And their rebellion, they appointed a captain to return to their bondage. What What is being prayed out loud is, we are aware that the generations that preceded us chose 
to rebel against your delivered mandate. You tugged and you pulled, but they hardened their necks and they refused to be guided. They're very clear in their language. They're not making excuses. They're not saying we're aware that the generations that preceded us made mistakes. They're not saying you must understand God. They were misled. And being misled, they stepped a little bit off the road into the trench. No, they're saying plain out. It was open rebellion against your mandate. Listen to verse 26. They were disobedient and rebelled against thee and cast thy law behind their backs, slew thy prophets which testified against them to turn them to thee. They wrought great provocations. Now I know that's a lot of Bible talk. But what they are articulating out loud to God is when your law came to them, they stared at your holiness and they despised the holiness. And so they simply removed your law from before them and threw it behind their backs because they got sick to death of living according to your mandates. They did not want to see themselves in light of your law. And so intentionally they took it and cast it behind their backs. And so you sent prophets to them. And your prophets did everything they could to deliver the message to turn them back to you. And when they were confronted with the message, they killed the prophets. And they did many things to provoke you to wrath. Does it sound like in any way they're being insincere? Does it sound in any way like they are being self-righteous? Does it sound in any way like they are making excuses? Absolutely not. In complete and utter humility, they are communicating to God their open sin and rebellion. And in doing so, they take us to the next step on the path to repentance. They're surrendering. Again, I'll take you to verse 3. They stood in their place. They read in the book of the law. And what we have depicted before us in verse 3 is hours of confession followed by hours of praise. The Levites are standing on the stairs up to the water gate while the others are on the platform that had been built for the declaration of the law of God. And one group is crawling out confession and another group is calling out praise and they're going back and forth talking about God and His goodness. It's very evident by the time we get to verse 5 as we close it out. Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And blessed be thy glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Surrendering to God. This indicates something to us. Surrender. For us, the idea of surrender communicates weakness. Surrender. It is submission. Confession is a word that we are familiar with. They are standing and they are confessing their sins. It brings to our mind, perhaps, verses that we are familiar with where John, the beloved disciple, wrote this. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The word confess, as John writes it, is a Greek word which communicates to us, I agree with God about my sin, and I submit. Yes, Lord, it is sin. I agree with God. I don't know if you are a fighter. I am looking around, I don't see a lot of fighters. 
But I do know that if I was forced into the octagon and I was engaged in a mixed martial arts UFC fight, I would not last long. But if you took me and you said, what we're going to do with you, Chris, is we're going to train you for two or three days. And what that would maybe do is teach me how to put the gloves on. And we're going to stick you in a ring and we're putting you in the heavyweight division. I would enter the ring. I would be in the heavyweight division. I would enter the ring. And immediately, if you were watching the fight and they said, you have to put your money on somebody. Now we're talking about fighting and gambling on a Sunday morning. It's great. You have to put your money on somebody. Who's going to lose? There isn't a person in here who's going to say, my, my money's on the Baptist pastor to take out this heavyweight. But what you would know is this. I'm not going to last long. And if the fight began, I probably would have an option from the get-go. I know how this is going to go. I know that I'm going to take a beating. And so I submit now. I tap out now. Now, let's say I was audacious enough to say, no, that's not me. I'm going to engage in battle for a minute. I'm going to fight. It would not take long before I would be put into what is known as a submission hold. It might be an arm bar. It might be something that makes my knee feel like it's going to be ripped apart. It may make my innards come to my outers. I don't know. But I do know that I would have an option when I was placed into a submission move and I literally could not take it anymore. I would surrender. I would tap out to an opponent who was much stronger than me, who could dictate my health. I would say, please let me go. You win. And he kindly would let me up. Are you aware that when we are confronted with the law of God and we are shown how perverse and how crooked our behavior, our heart's condition is in light of God's word, in effect, what we are commanded to do according to scripture is confess. You need to agree with God about your sin. Your options are to then take God on. And by the way, you lose. So you must submit, surrender to God on his terms. Agree with God about your sin. What helps me to agree with God about my sin? I would say it is the third step on the path to repentance. It's awareness of who God is. As the priests are singing back and forth confession and praise, we get to the end of verse 5 and they say this, Stand up. And bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Do you understand what they're doing? They are acknowledging the majesty and the might and the sovereignty and the power and the holiness of God. And although I continue to come across this in Scripture, I'm slow to learn it. When we see God as He is, We rightly see ourselves as we are. And I know that I diminish God, and it is not my intention. But it is like stepping into the ring, assessing your opponent and realizing, I lose this fight. The best thing to do is surrender now. When we see God as he is, we see ourselves as we are. And that's what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 6 as we pray. He said, after this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. When he says, our Father, which art in heaven, that's not a reference to his address. 
but rather a reference to his attributes. He is transcendent. He is majestic. He is sovereign. He is above all. Yes, when I pray, I come to a loving Father, but I also come before a holy God, and I feel like the reason that we manage sin in our lives and live a facade and live life with a mask and do so so insincerely is because we just don't see God as he is. God is holy and God is just and God is mighty and God is great and God is creator and God is powerful. And if with our human eyes, we could glimpse for a moment the outpouring of his wrath upon sin, I imagine that it would change how we manage it in our lives. And what is so tragic is we do have imagery within Scripture. We do see the outpouring as Jesus Christ bore the wrath of His Father on the cross. What violence, what agony, what pain as He cried out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? Do you comprehend that we do know that God is high and lifted up, that he is great, and the Bible word is terrible. He is to be feared, not in the sense that we quake in our boots, but rather that we revere him for his might and his power. If I see God as he is, I surrender to God on his terms, and I do so humbly. Now, I want you to note with me how they continue to pray. By the time we get down to verse 32, and I could read a whole lot, I won't. We read as they continue referencing God as He is. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the terrible God, who keep His covenant and mercy, let not all the trouble seem little before Thee that hath come upon us, on our kings, on our princes, on our priests, on our prophets, our fathers, thy people, since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. Now just stay with them in this prayer. God, we know who you are. We see you as you are. And we know that we have dealt with a terrible plight. And we don't want you to think that we take that lightly. We understand that this has been grievous and this has been painful and we have lost loved ones and our city has been wiped out and our way of worship destroyed and much of our culture removed. Now I want you to hear something that is absolutely stunning to me. In verse 33, here's what they say. Howbeit, thou art just in all that is brought upon us for thou hast done right, but we have done wickedly. That's an incredible statement, isn't it? And by the way, God, you are right for what you did. Because you are just and you are right and we are sinful and we are wicked. You were right and we were wrong, even in that terrible bondage. Can you imagine being disciplined by your parents? Let's make it as simple as, Chris, no dessert for you. You go to your room. You've not been a good boy. How do you think my parents would respond if I stood up, pushed my chair in, and I said, Mom and Dad, let me say something. Listen, you're right in what you're doing. I should go to my room without dessert. You made your expectations clear to me, and I have failed to meet your expectations, 
And though I desperately want dessert, though I really want that ice cream, I want you to know you are just in your actions because I am so terribly wicked. I'm sorry for what I've done, and though I really want that, I will go to my room because you're right, you're just in what you've done. I wouldn't get a step away from my chair before my mom would say, give him the ice cream now. Give him whatever he wants. Do you comprehend what they're communicating? They are so aware of God's greatness and majesty. And they are so aware of their sin-riddled state that they look at God and say, you were right, get this, to literally ravage our homeland, wipe out our city, and allow us to be carried off into captivity, to allow us to limp back and rebuild these walls which were rubble in a city that is not yet populated. You were right, God. That's stunning to me. The amount of humility and the amount of surrender and the amount of awareness that it takes to say, and God, you were right. We are so loath to tell God he's just and he's right. And we are so slow to see ourselves as sin-riddled and dirty that we just can never tell God, you know what? You were right. We were wrong. You're justified in what you did. One author said this, The average Christian has learned how to manage his sin rather than confess his sin. We learn to live with as much sin as our consciences will allow. We sugarcoat our selfishness, rationalize our disobedience, justify our arrogance, excuse our lack of obedience to the law of God. We manage our sin. We do not confess our sin. Let me add on to that. Unless we get publicly caught... And then we acknowledge our sin. But up until being publicly caught, we manage it. Because after all, the only one who sees it is God. And that's because we've diminished God in our eyes, which keeps us from surrendering because we live so proud. Therefore, we never repent and revival is constantly inhibited. How specific these people were. We did wrong. You acted faithfully. We did wrong. You told us we didn't pay attention. You said it and we didn't heed your words. You gave it to us and we threw it behind our back. There is no if in true confession. There is no if I made a mistake. If I didn't say it right, God. If I didn't do it right, wrong. It is all out. God, I was blasphemous. I was stubborn. I was arrogant. I refused to listen to your scriptures. I stiffened my neck. I was unleadable. I closed my ears. I covered my eyes. I was rebellious. I was scorning to the very law you delivered. I refused everything that you said, but I will not refuse to repent. Stop managing sin. And I could rip off a list, right? Lust and greed and pride, materialism, the tongue that can dominate every relationship that we're in, anger residing in the heart. All of these things that in one way or another are in us and we negotiate with God over it and we manage it and we put up with it and therefore we live insincere. Some people wonder, why is the spiritual life so exhausting? Because you have to fake it. And faking it is so hard to do. It takes so much more energy to fake your way through it. We have forgotten how heartbreaking How grievous sin is in the life of a believer to our Heavenly Father. 
But when we come to this fresh realization that sin is corruption and filth, justification of it stops and confession begins. And you say, well, all I do is slander people. I mean, it's not hurting them. They're not aware, but it grieves a holy God. And until we get back to the place where we comprehend that, selfishness will be the rule of the day. Arrogance will just be how we navigate marriage and life. Anger will just be the overriding emotion of every instance. We'll continue to be materialistic and proud and envious and and all kinds of petulant things because we just won't ever tell ourselves. doesn't matter if anybody knows. God knows. doesn't matter if it seems like it doesn't hurt or it seems like it's insignificant to me. To a holy and just God, it's overwhelmingly significant. And for that, he could punish me by taking my life. It's stunning to realize that within all of this, they're telling us, and don't forget, God's gracious. God's good. Think of this. He could have wiped them out, but he sent them into bondage. You say, well, yeah. Yes, he could have killed them, but he allowed them to come home. And it is our nature to hide things. All the way back to the garden. Adam, you're a sinner. And Adam tried to cover his nakedness, and so did Eve. And they tried to hide from the presence of God. And when God came in, Adam blamed Eve, and Eve blamed the serpent. It is our natural state to try to hide sin and manage it, and to keep it away from God. And the scripture is saying, no, 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 just open up, stop justifying it, and realize that God is great, and He's powerful, and He's terrible, but He's also merciful. Just note in verse 17, the second part of verse 17, but thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. In verse 28, the second part, when they returned and cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven, and many times didst thou deliver them according to thy mercies. In verse 30, yet many years didst thou forbear them and testifiest against them by thy spirit in thy prophets. Verse 31, nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and a merciful God. You can't have one without the other. And that's the beautiful thing about the nature of God. I am to be humbled and I am to capitulate and surrender and submit aware that God is terrible and that He's mighty and that He's just and that He's powerful and that He's holy. But I am also comforted by and I have one handle of hope as I'm completely under the water of my sin and I hold on to the fact that in spite of all that, He is also gracious and merciful. He is also forgiving, and He is also kind. It's the hope that I have when I come to God, no matter how gross and wretched I am, I will find grace and mercy and forgiveness. And sometimes the hardest place to get right is in a room full of Christian people like us because we feel so judged. And we feel like we won't measure up. Who cares? God is gracious, and God is merciful, and God will forgive. There's a beautiful image of this in the Old Testament. If we went back to 1 Samuel, we would overhear David make a promise to Jonathan and to Saul. And what David would tell them is, when I become the king, I will be kind to your lineage. I'll be kind to your family. Now, this might be hard for us to understand, but in the culture of the day, if a king from outside the family ascended to the throne, it was normal behavior for him to wipe out the old king's entire family. 
to literally slaughter them so that he did not have to live in fear of reprisal for taking the throne. And David has now ascended to the throne. His kingdom is established. Saul is long dead. Jonathan is long dead. David does not owe them a thing. David does not have to come through on his word. Everybody would understand, but something incredible happens. David remembers his promise, and in 2 Samuel 9, he follows up on it, and here's what happens. 2 Samuel 9, 1, David says, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And Ziba, who is a servant within David's house, steps forward. And he says, yes, sir, there is one. Jonathan has a son. And I don't know why Ziba does this. I don't know why he takes it there. But he says, yes, there is one. But he is lame in his feet. Adding on, David, I'm not sure that you are understanding what's going on here. Now, I know David could say, well, that's a game changer. David could say, that's more than I bargained for. But I want you to listen to what David responds. And I want you to hear the grace. In 2 Samuel 9, King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face, and he did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not. For I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. Now just stop for a second, because what we're seeing is a depiction of how amazing grace is, and how it actually works. Mephibosheth did not deserve to be at the king's table. It would have been status quo for David to wipe Mephibosheth out. In fact, we can even see as Mephibosheth comes into David's house, he bows on his face. There is clear fear there. And when David says, Mephibosheth, he says, Behold thy servant, probably expecting a sentence of execution. But rather than getting a sentence of execution, David says, in effect, Get up. I will restore unto you all the land of your father Saul, and I am telling you, just like one of my own, just like family, you will eat at my table continually. One author vividly paints a verbal image, and I love it. He says, imagine in your mind dinner at David's house, and walk into the room and grasp this. Here comes Amnon, clever, witty. He's at the table first. In comes Joab, one of the guests. He's muscular. This is what this guy wrote. Muscular. Skin bronzed from the sun. I don't want credit for that. Walking tall like the soldier that he is. Next comes Absalom. Hair flowing. Handsome from the top of his head to the bottom of his foot. Not a blemish in him. Then arrives Tamar, the beautiful daughter of David. She slips into her seat in a minute or two. Then comes Solomon. Fresh from his study. He's been in there working all day and he steps away so that he can attend. And in comes Solomon, who is going to be the wisest and wealthiest man that's ever walked the face of the earth. They're all now seated. But then if you listen down the hall, you can hear one coming with the aid of a servant. Here comes Mephibosheth. Into the table where David's family is, he smiles. 
And he humbly joins the others as he takes his place at the table as one of the king's children, with his legs covered by the tablecloth of grace. Have you ever stopped to imagine that one day when we are seated and we are in heaven, that we're at the banquet table, as it were, with Paul, who was mercilessly, beat, mercilessly beaten for the cause of Christ and wrote a third of the New Testament and, and saw and did amazing things. He's in heaven at the table and so are you. And what about Peter, who was a denier? Yes. But he also walked on water and he also preached on the day of Pentecost and he also pastored the church of Jerusalem and he also withstood. What about John, the beloved disciple who reclined on Jesus in the upper room? What about John who was exiled onto Patmos and saw visions of heaven? What about John? He's there and you are too. What about Abraham? What about Isaac? What about Esther? What about Moses and me? We're there together. Can you fathom? What about the great martyrs of the faith? And you and I, we're all there. And I would ask you this. Do you deserve that? Do you merit that? And if you see yourself as the Apostle Paul, stop. You aren't. I'm close. I'm... If you see yourself as Peter or John or Abraham or Moses, stop. If you see yourself as one of the great martyrs of the faith, one of the great fathers of the faith, adhering to Scripture, if you see yourself paying the price to translate and hold on to and defend at the stake, and we're there too. That's grace. That's how it works. It's mercy. It's unmerited. It's favor that comes from God. And I'll just say it to you this way. Repentance is necessary for revival. And revival doesn't happen because individuals like us refuse to see ourselves as we are. But when our lives are intersected with the word of God, which is unchangeable and it's eternal, penned by God himself, we literally have no option but to finally choose humility and to tap out and to surrender to God on his terms, aware of who he truly is. And we don't do that in fear. We do that with the beautiful thought that he is gracious and he's merciful and he's kind. And though he could put us in the submission hold and literally squeeze the life out of us, the second we tap, he lets us up and takes us in as one of his own. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.